Welcome to Win the Future, a podcast where we chat with folks who are tackling the most significant challenges our communities face today to make for a better tomorrow. I'm your host, Rep Roaster. Hello and welcome to Win the Future. This is episode six, and we are here with the one and only state representative for a little while longer. <laughs> yeah. Jesse McLaughlin, welcome. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, pleasure. Thank you for coming. Today we're going to talk a little bit about psychedelics and the role it can play in helping with our mental health crisis. Sure. Which I think is incredibly important always, but specifically in the midst of COVID when a lot of people are isolated and, and struggling. So can you tell, tell me a little bit about that? I think we all, we had a, a sense that, uh, I mean, at least for me personally, that mental health care was starting to kind of come into the forefront. You had people started to come forward. You know, celebrities started to talk about struggles with depression. You, you saw some, some, you know, some more prominent people in the mainstream um, kind of opening up about the topic and talking about wellness. And, uh, you know, nootropics got really big. For those listening, nootropics being basically vitamins 2.0. Um, so, uh, cognitive enhancing, um, cognitive enhancing supplements, but we're seeing some of the most, uh, respected research organizations in the United States produce really incredible data, uh, showing the potential for psychedelics to play a really important role in helping us, um, as a society, um, treat long-standing mental health disorders that uh, until recently we haven't we haven't made any sort of significant breakthroughs in how we treat mental health disorders in decades if you were to ask someone who may be prescribed you know a pharmaceutical they're probably looking at SSRIs as the most widely uh, most effective prescription drug and they have pretty low uh, relatively low success rates as, uh, to, to treat depression, anxiety, PTSD, and the data coming out of organizations like Hopkins and NYU for, uh, <laughs> amazingly enough, for psychedelics is has been considered a breakthrough status by the FDA. So what got you interested in exploring this issue? Trying to sort out my own head several years back. I just started to, uh, you know, I realized that I was doing things to self-medicate and started asking myself, well, you know, why am I doing these things? And the answer was really had to do with uh, the fact that, you know, I was living with undiagnosed uh, pain, you know, emotional, mental pain. Didn't really understand it. And it started a, you know, a journey of exploration that brought me into cognitive behavioral therapy and into, you know, conversations, an exploration of, you know, metacognition, thinking about how, how I think and um, where certain behavioral patterns are coming from and the emotions that cause them and the underlying belief systems behind those, um, those emotions. And I started researching and stumbled upon um, the work being done to... Um, to research psychedelics and um, found that research to be quite compelling. And I know that there are so, some states that have some states, some cities that have already looked at this. What are, what are a couple of those? Sure. 
you know, in this field, there are, there are a number of ways to think about this. So you have, you know, decriminalization, which is basically putting, putting the substance at the bottom of the list of priorities for law enforcement. And then uh, legalization. So Denver has, the city of Denver has moved to, to decriminalize. And actually, there's a ballot initiative in Oregon to medically legalize psilocybin medical therapy and psilocybin being the active ingredient in psilocybin mushrooms or as they're more colloquially known uh, as magic mushrooms. You know, it's going to be on the ballot tomorrow. Uh, we'll see what happens. Johns Hopkins University right now is uh, undergoing uh, clinical trials for the impact of uh, psilocybin on a number of disorders. Um, they've already conducted one trial on the impact of, of nicotine addiction and have seen far superior results than on the nicot uh, compared to the nicotine patch. But this wasn't a double blind blind study where there's a placebo involved. This was a open label. So all the patients are given psilocybin and, uh, under the supervision of a, of a doctor and a clinician. And um, they checked back six months to see how they're doing. And at the six-month mark, they had a 57% success rate of heavy smokers who are no longer addicted to nicotine, as opposed to a 25% success rate for traditional nicotine patches. Wow. And I know that um, we've talked a little bit about how alcohol is being treated by uh, using psychedelics you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So NYU, back in 2015, um, began a study for the impact of psilocybin on alcoholism. And I recently connected with one of their subjects, young man, uh, early 30s, Wall Street professional. Um, I don't think he would mind us using his name. He was on 60 Minutes with Anderson Cooper, um, John Costacopoulos, uh, and... He uh, was an alcoholic, 20 drinks a day, tried everything. His doctors told him he had, you know, years to a couple years to live before his, his organs started to shut down because of his lifestyle. And he was, he enrolled and accept, was accepted by the Hopkins program and uh, underwent a few sessions with psilocybin. And for those listening, that's uh, what, what that looks like is a um, you sit down in like a living room with your clinician um, at having gone through, you know, some basic talk therapy and they put the headband, the, the, uh, the sleep mask on you and listen to some music that you picked out beforehand. And um, the uh, psilocybin is administered and they have an experience for about four or five hours things come up and then there is post session you know therapy time between doctor and patient and he hasn't had a drink since he hasn't wanted a drink since and he has devoted his career now to advancing the um, the study and the adoption of psychedelics as a mental health treatment it's really powerful. Wow. Yeah, it's really powerful. And then I, I know that a, a 
fighting PTSD is one of the main pieces that that psychedelics have been researched in terms of uh, their their utilization in a medical capacity. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. So you know, you can't talk about psychedelics without and their medical application without bringing up Rick Doblin and MAPS. So MAPS was started in the mid '80s by um, by a gentleman by the name of Rick Doblin, and um, they've they're a nonprofit organization, and they've been working to to fund research um, to study the impact of particularly MDMA and its impact and effect on um, patients with PTSD. Um, recently, the FDA actually granted. MDMA and psilocybin breakthrough status for their ability to combat um, uh, mental illness, mental health disorders. Um, but as far as PTSD goes, uh, the, the, the implications and ramifications that psilocybin can have, or psychedelics in general can have on patients with PTSD is, is um, I mean, it's compelling. So right now, 20 veterans a day currently commit suicide. And there's a growing movement happening, particularly to help veterans um, by opening up access to psychedelic therapy. So the Heroic Hearts Project, which was started by a army ranger who served multiple tours in Afghanistan, uh, came back and suffered from PTSD, from the things that he had to go through, and found treatment. In I in South America, in a um, traditional, a traditional uh, South American um, ceremony. In this case, it was with ayahuasca, which is a preparation of a of a tea that contains the active ingredient dimethyltryptamine, which is a psychedelic, and it helped him radically transform his life, and. Um, helped rewire the negative feedback loop that was causing so many problems in his own personal life. He has since started the Heroic Hearts Project to advocate for um, opening up those opportunities for other veterans who unfortunately can't seek that traditional care with a clinician in the United States because psychedelics are considered Schedule One narcotics, which means they have a high likelihood for addiction with no medical benefits. I think the data is showing that both of those things are false. Um, more people have overdosed, more people overdose from opioids every day than really have ever overdosed from psilocybin mushrooms. And after you do them, you talk to these patients, you talk to these patients after they uh, go through a session, they're not looking for another session. So we're talking about a truly disruptive, um, truly disruptive contribution to um, the me- me- mental health field. Wow. Yeah. And it turns out it's thousands of years old. That's, that's incredible. Well, hey, Jesse, we're going to take a quick break. We're here with Jesse McLaughlin, and we will be back for the second part of our show in a few minutes here. Win the Future is sponsored in part by Connecticut by the Numbers. If you're looking to learn more about what's happening and why, check out Connecticut by the Numbers, where every number tells a story. 
Connecticut by the Numbers goes beyond the headlines across the state. For Connecticut news that counts, visit ctnumbers.news or follow them at ctnumbers. All right, everybody. Thank you for uh, staying tuned. We are back for the second segment here with Jesse McLaughlin. Thanks for sticking around. And Jesse, I know both of us have um, struggled with our own mental health and uh, both have gone through cognitive therapy and continue to. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about your journey? Yeah, no, I'd love to. Yeah, big. I'm an enthusiastic uh, proponent and supporter of therapy. I never thought I'd I'd say that, let alone on a, a podcast. Um, but you know, we're supposed to go to a primary care doctor once a year to get a checkup for every other part of our brain, and for some reason, um, we're as a society we don't really extend the same courtesy to our minds as far as the the treatment we get. Uh, whether for the stigma around it or for the fact that it's so uh, dang expensive to talk to a therapist. In 2017, um, it became abundantly clear to me that, uh, you know, it's not natural to kind of go into a hole for a couple weeks at a time. Uh, Emotionally, as far as my communication goes, kind of shutting down in a lot of ways. And it took, you know, being in a relationship with my, you know, now girlfriend who kind of pointed out that it's kind of weird and not natural that I was sort of shutting down and kind of disappearing mentally and emotionally speaking for weeks at a time. And I thought that was just something that people do. Right. Um, and so luckily found a, a therapist and it was one of the best decisions in my life. And, uh, I wish I had started going, uh, years ago. Um, but I think the expectation, like I think the the picture that we have in our heads of of therapy is sort of like laying on a couch, talking about why and how mom and dad, you know, hurt you as a kid, and uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is not that at all. Um, yeah, game changing. Right. Yeah, it's it's closer to what what I would call like mindfulness. You yeah. know what the what the uh, you know Roman philosophers would probably call stoicism, but being cognizant of how you think and of the constant narrative, realizing that there's a narrative going on in your mind at all times and that it's influencing the way that you emotionally respond to external stimuli and uh, which governs actions. And it's about sort of taking control of that narrative and challenging that narrative when it becomes self-destructive and doing so with logic and reason. Definitely. Uh, The mindfulness piece is key. And I know, uh, meditation is something that uh, we both explored and, and utilized. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, how you've used that? Sure. Very, like, you know, just I've taken a really sort of basic and I tr- try to take a utilitarian approach to meditation in the sense of um, I have an ongoing narrative in my head. Let's say it's uh, you suck. Let's, let's take that one for a, as a perfect example. To combat that, what I'll try to do is I'll take five seconds throughout the day. I'll just take a deep breath, choose a different script. So if I'm feeling like um, financial stresses are getting me down, I'll take a deep breath and remind myself that I live in abundance. If I feel like I'm screwing up um, and I'm getting down on myself for that, I take a 
I take five seconds and I just remind myself that, um, that I'm capable and that life isn't about not making mistakes. Mistakes are part of experience and experience is one of the fundamental components of learning. And that's what life is about, you know, learning and improving. So little things like that to try to rewire my brain and replace a destructive script with a constructive script. What advice would you give to somebody who's at home right now, uh, struggling and, and worried about the stigma, um, stigma around seeking therapy or uh, exploring options to, to help that aren't destructive? Yeah, I would say that it's uh, that that everyone, uh, to varying degrees, has their own mental health journey. Uh, some are not as fortunate as, as others, in the sense of the internal narrative is harsher. Um, but uh, talking to someone is responsible, um, and there's no shame in in taking control of your own mental health care life and seeking the help of a professional. That's what doctors are for. They are, they are trained to help people like us who aren't trained navigate our bodies and our minds. No, understood. And that's a great point. Great advice. Uh, You've been through it. What, what would you say? Would yeah. What would um, you say? You've been through the ringer on this whole I think being kind to yourself and, and making sure that uh, you understand it's okay to take action and that it doesn't have to be a significant action. It's kind of like getting back into the gym or currently getting back into the gym is not very healthy or safe, but it's like getting back into exercise or getting um, back into writing. And so I've got one last question for you, kind of bringing it back to psychedelics. Sure. I know that um, psychedelic use for um, mind expansion and, and for, for the journey that brings back quants to, or analysts to end up having this sort of superpower or real superpower. Um, can you talk a little bit about that trend and how that plays into uh, kind of the, the, the issue? Yeah, there's... Silicon Valley is really into, uh, I think what you're talking about is microdosing. Yeah. So Silicon Valley started, started uh, taking up microdoses, microdosing of LSD. Um, and for those who don't, for those listening, microdosing is taking a very small amount of a psychoactive, um, in this case, a psychedelic where there are no immediate noticeable, um, side effects. You don't, the person doesn't trip, but there are more latent sort of background effects, uh, sustained creativity, a faster time getting into flow state. I mean, how would you define flow state, by the way? Hitting stride, being in the zone. Um, but those rare times where you find yourself so plucked in that you, uh, you can't lose focus and it is completely a positive experience. It's not very succinct, but no, and, it, and and people fight really. I mean, there are podcast, you know, plenty. You know, God, if there's one, if there's one podcast on it, there, are, there are, but no, no offense, but just particularly on, <laughs> but 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 but, 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 but per, particularly on flow state, right? Yeah. So the, these Silicon Valley guys, you know, they're 
Um, and they've, they've put a lot of money into it too. So, um, the Johns Hopkins university down in Baltimore opened the very first center dedicated to psychedelic research. And that was funded largely from private grants syndicated amongst, um, Silicon Valley, uh, donors organized by Tim Ferriss. And so this space is attracting institutional capital in Canada where the laws are a little different. Um, there are a couple of companies that have already been uh, publicly listed on the Canadian Stock Exchange with the intention of synthesizing uh, psychedelic therapies. And they've already been valued, you know, valued at over a billion dollars a piece. So the investment community already sees the writing on the wall that's coming at, from the data being produced by Hopkins, by NYU, by Berkeley, and we're looking at the disruption of a $80 billion a year global industry. Wow. Interesting. Uh, so in terms of Connecticut, how do you see, how do you see the future looking for the industry in a sense of what could happen short of legalization in the future? Connecticut's a funny place because in some ways we're progressive um, as far as reproductive rights go or um, in, in the way that uh, we move to uh, legalize gay marriage. But we're also kind of Puritan in the way that we approach controlled substances. And I think the, I think what, what stakeholders in, in Connecticut need to, need to be convinced of is that um, psychedelics are not a toy or a drug to be played with, but rather a powerful medicine. And so I think our state will benefit by closely watching the data as it's produced by the, some, some of these research institutions um, and let that speak for itself because um, we are all in agreement that we're experiencing a mental health crisis. We're all in agreement that we're experiencing that the, the country, let alone Connecticut, is in an opioid epidemic. Hopkins has uh, has plans to uh, run trials on, I believe, psilocybin's effect on opioid addiction. Um, I believe it's I believe they're looking at psilocybin. Um, this is Roland Griffiths and uh, uh, down at, down at Hopkins. Um, Dr. Matt Johnson pioneered the tobacco. Uh, work down there, but he's also looking at um, uh, psilocybin's impact on PTSD. We have plenty of veterans in Connecticut. Veterans are some of the most underserved people groups, you know, in our in our communities, um, particularly on this issue of mental health care and and, um, and addiction treatment. Um, we owe it to them. We owe it to the people who uh, who are experiencing you know the disease of mental illness to at least be open-minded and listen to science. Definitely. Well, Jesse, I can't thank you enough for your time. Any last words you want to give to the audience? Um, man, by the time uh, this, this airs, it'll, the elections will be over. So I, otherwise, I would say uh, exercise your right to vote um, and uh, try to get outside as much as possible, get sunshine, get exercise, and uh, be kind to yourself. Love it. Well, Jesse, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Episode six, Jesse McLaughlin. 
And please stay tuned for another episode of Win the Future. Thank you for listening to the Win the Future podcast, sponsored by the strategic communications firm, A Better Campaign. Make sure to visit our website at abettercampaign.com backslash win the future. Please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends. Thank you for tuning in. Please tune in again next Thursday for another episode of Win the Future.